Do you find yourself saying you're too busy for Bible study? No more excuses. Now there's a way for you to participate in a 30-minute study from your phone, tablet, or computer from anywhere around the world. Aaron Olson of Sandalfeet Ministries teaches lunchtime lessons via Facebook Live every Thursday at 12 p.m. Central Standard Time at facebook.com slash sandalfeet. This podcast is recorded during the Facebook Live event for those who'd like to listen to the teaching again or help out in case you miss a week. So grab your lunch, your Bible, and a notepad before we begin. If you'd like to get Aaron's teaching notes, you can visit sandalfeet.org and click on Books and Bible Studies to see all the available free Bible study material. Hey, thanks for listening today, and we hope you tune in each week for Lunchtime Lessons. Hi. Hi. I'm so excited that you're joining me this week for Lunchtime Lessons. I apologize again for missing last week. Last Thursday, I unfortunately had to attend a funeral of a very dear friend's aunt. She had suffered for the past 23 months from a brain tumor. She underwent a few surgeries and suffered many strokes and was paralyzed and coming blind in her eyes. And literally for the past few months, she begged God to take her home uh, to heaven. And so it was rejoicing and sadness uh, that she left this earth to find peace and comfort in the arms of her savior. And and like I said, I apologize for missing, but as I reminded my son um, when he said, oh my goodness, mom, I can't believe you're missing lunchtime lessons for the funeral. I reminded him that people are important and people matter. And sometimes we can become so dogmatic in our approaches that we forget that um, the gospel, our lives, everything about it is all for people. And if we neglect the care of people um, for these sorts of things, these structured things, then Sometimes we forget our mission. So um, it also reminded me that heaven is our home. For all those who believe in Christ, heaven is our final destination. And the same week in which my dear friend went home um, was also the week that Billy Graham went home to heaven. And I have no idea, and I will never understand why some people suffer for long periods of time before they're taken home. And others live long lives relatively free of pain um, and, and eventually make it home to heaven. I don't understand why young children are taken. I don't understand why um, people are suddenly taken from us. I have no answers whatsoever. But what I know is the most important thing is that our eternal salvation rests in the belief of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Um, because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we have eternal life. Yesterday, when I was driving home from church, I was in the car alone with my 10-year-old son, and we were nearing our house, we were rounding the corner, and he said, Mom, do you know what makes me the saddest in the world? And I asked him, I said, no, I, I have no idea. And he said, it makes me sad to think that people will spend eternity in hell. And I mean, that's really profound for a 10-year-old to say that, that that's the saddest thing for him, is that people will spend eternity in hell separated from God, living in a fiery lake of fire, a hot heat, that that will never ever end. And while we think things are bad here on earth, the possibility of eternity living like that is impossible. And there are worse words to describe than sad for that, but that was what my 10 year old voiced. And for him to say that, really sets an example for all of us, doesn't it? That our main mission, our main goal as Christians 
should be to share the hope of Jesus Christ with as many people as we can so that they will have the opportunity to make the decision to spend eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven with God the Father. Um, that should be our goal. And really the Apostle Paul in these letters and all of the letters he wrote in the New Testament, this ultimately was his purpose. He was sent out to proclaim who Jesus is. He had an encounter, I've spoke about this, he had a radical encounter with Jesus. Um, we all should have a radical encounter with Jesus. We should all know exactly when it was that moment we went from death to life, the day that we died to self to live for Christ. Um, and if you don't haven't had that moment yet, I would challenge you today, let today be the day that you think about it, ponder it and say, Lord, have I really truly accepted you? Does my life look differently now than before I knew Christ as my savior? And if it doesn't, dig a little deeper and ask the Lord to search your heart and say, Lord, have I really surrendered to you? I was speaking to somebody yesterday briefly um, by messenger. I'm hoping to use his story in a book that I'm writing. And, and I asked him, I said, when did you become a Christian? And he said, in 2006, the Lord became my savior. But it wasn't until 2016 when he was at a, the lowest point of his life that he actually surrendered to Christ. So there, there could be, this could be you. You could have accepted Jesus as your savior, but not surrendered to Jesus. Um, you could say, I believe in you, Jesus, but I'm still holding on to something. And he asks us to lay it all down. The apostle Paul laid it all down. He gave his all every day um, to go out into his world and to proclaim the gospel. And he was also charged with planting the early church and, and instructing the early church on what they should and shouldn't be doing. Now, we two weeks ago, we talked about 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there's the end section of chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 specifically, that we're going to cover briefly today, uh, because it starts the text of what we're going to talk about today. There's two things in the end of chapter 3 and in chapter all of chapter 4 about who we, the church, are, and what we, the church, are to do. And so briefly, I'm going to read the scriptures like I do. I'm going to start by reading just the end of chapter 3 first, and then I'll read chapter 4 in just a bit. All right, so I'm starting here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I am writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Now, Paul, always, it always comes back to, it's like every chapter he writes the gospel story. He writes the gospel account just to remind people that this is our mission. This is what we're talking about here. We're talking about this mystery that was revealed by God in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what we bank our hope on. So let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, Lord, just thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to know hope because of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as I um, teach these words in your scripture today, as I think about and ponder, and as I did research, Lord, as to what the Apostle Paul was trying to convey to Timothy, Lord, that we see the relevance in today's church, uh, just as Paul would have asked Timothy to do back then. Father, I pray that you would ease our minds of distractions for these next 30 minutes, Lord, and that you would help us concentrate on the timely message, the rhema word that you have for us today. 
We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so getting back to these verses here. Verse 15, this verse right here. Um, so that if I am delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. This right here is the thesis statement for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. Right, Paul's urgent message was to Timothy about how the church should be conducting itself as God's household. Now, these Greco-Roman people in this time in Ephesus would have understood the context of what God, uh, Paul was referring to as God's household. You see, because just like with our society, the Greco-Roman society banked the stability of the government, the stability of the people on the household. If people in the household were conducting themselves correctly and orderly, men had their position, women had their position, government had its position, if that was all functioning properly, there wasn't upheaval, there weren't revolts, there weren't riots, uh, there was peace. And so they would have understood this context and we can apply it to us today. When we see in society when things are not in unity and things are not conducting themselves the way that they should when others are trying to usurp authority um, or work outside the common box then we often see riots we see revolts we see infighting within whatever whether it be government whether it be households whether it be churches uh, there's no stability there so paul is reminding timothy here to remember that the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, the church of the living God, it's not just a building. Remember this. We are not talking about a building. We are talking about us, each one of us who believe in Jesus Christ as the holy temple of God. We are to conduct ourselves as the church. And if we do that, if we properly work, then we will be delivering truth to people whomever we come in contact with. So remember the significance of the church, who we are. We are God's family. We, the church, collectively and individually, we are members of God's family. When we become a believer in Christ Jesus, we gain brothers and sisters around the world who weren't in our birth family, our blood family, but who are now in our spiritual family. We are the dwelling place of God's presence. These people would have remembered... Um, you remember the story of Jacob when he wrestled with God and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. And so that is where God's presence dwelt. Well, God's presence now, should this should motivate us as Christians. The fact that God dwells in us and among us through his Holy Spirit should motivate us to do great and wonderful things for his glory. I mean, we have the Holy Spirit's power within us to go out, to proclaim, to teach, to encourage, to do all of these things that we have giftings for at the moment of salvation in Romans 12, 6 to 8. We have that ability only through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are the dwelling place of God's presence. Um, we are the guardians of God's word. We, the church, are asked to guard God's word. And we do this a few ways, right? We need to make sure that we are, are following the word of God. It's the pillar and it's the foundation of truth, which is his word, the church. His word, us the church, that's the foundation. God said that, Jesus said that Peter would be the rock on which it was the church was built. It's a strong foundation. Again, we go back to this context of this 
if these of this audience right here, these people would have understood it. I've, I've gone back and forth and I've talked a lot about Diana, the goddess of Ephesus. Well, she had this huge, huge temple and it was actually one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. And it had hundred, it had hundreds of strong columns surrounding it. So they could, if they're sitting there in Ephesus and they're envisioning this strong foundation, we've got to remember that this word right here, this is what holds us up. Without the word of God, it's inerrancy and it's truths and it coming true, then where would we be as the church? We would have no foundation. So our foundation must always be built on the word of God and Jesus Christ. Um, that's what makes it strong. And we have the privilege and responsibility of preserving God's word. If we don't teach God's word, if we don't um, save it, if we don't speak it, it's our fault. It's nobody else's fault. This word is available. And if we don't um, steward it well, it's on us. It's not on God. It's not on Jesus. It's not on the Holy Spirit. It's on us individually as believers, collectively as the church, if we are not preserving it and taking it to the world responsibly. And, and, and in that nutshell, we must proclaim God's word. We have to hold God's word high, not man's opinions, not the way that culture is going, not man's innovation, man's creativity. If church is boring, it doesn't matter. If the word of God is preached, that's all that matters. We get really comfortable in comfy, cozy churches these days, and I'll be the first to admit I'm one of them. And so, but we need to remember that if the only thing that was done in a church service was that the word of God was read and taught so that we could understand it, that would be more than enough. Because we give praise through the hearing and learning and teaching of God's word. It's not about the lights. It's not about the air conditioning. It's not about the heating. It's not about the comfortable seats. It's about God's word 100%. So like I said, the one thing that should motivate us Christians is that God dwells in us and among us. And so the practical application for today is my question is, do our churches look like this church at Ephesus, the early church? Do we look like that? Are we delivering false doctrine? Do we have false teachers who are delivering wrong messages um, are we disunified like some of the other churches? Um, do people encounter God's presence when they walk into your church? Can they feel that the Spirit of God dwells among the people there? Or have we, in our own strength, quieted and hushed the Holy Spirit? It's a good question because sometimes that happens. Man, woman, we work in our power to do our thing without consulting with the Holy Spirit or working in connection with, not going before the Holy Spirit, but following closely behind. Um, and outside of the four walls of church, do people encounter the presence of God when they're with you? Are you a walking Jesus? Are you a person whom people are drawn to? Do people want to be with you, not because of what you have, um, what you look like, what your name is, but because you have something in you that they want? that they wanna be a part of, that they wanna come alongside, that they are encouraged by, that they are taught by, are you that person? Are you allowing God to fully live in you and work where you are? Now, the rest of the chapter, verse 16, really just goes on to talk about Jesus. Like I said, Paul always preaches the gospel over and over and over throughout his letter. And so he's basically saying, listen, this is this great mystery that was talked about before in the prophets, and Jesus is now revealed to us. He died. 
he was buried, he rose, and he's coming again. And and that's in and it, and he was taken to heaven, right? He ascended to heaven, and and people believe on him now throughout the entire world. And that's the gospel. And he wants people to remember that Jesus is who he says he is. We need to remember that because if we forget that, if we move from that one major, major thing that we need to agree on, it really messes with the rest of scripture. If we think, well, you know, maybe he wasn't, maybe he did this, maybe he only had this limited capacity. We don't understand it all. He wasn't really the mystery that was revealed. Whatever it is that your doctrine might be not correct with, if we forget who Jesus is and his purpose for coming and what he means to each one of us, that there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If we think there are other ways to heaven besides Jesus, oh my goodness, the rest of this word is, is really void because Jesus is at the core of the entire Bible. Jesus is at the core of the entire gospel. So we need to remember that there is nothing else like the church, the big C church, nothing else like it in all of the world. When the church comes together, unified in power, whether that be through actually physically being together through praise and worship and prayer and fasting, when we can come together as one unified body without fighting um, in agreement, we're not, you know, Yes, there are minor things, there's major things, um, but if we can come around the table and sit with people of all denominations and say that Jesus is the Savior, he is the only way to heaven, um, that we are accessed, um, we are given the access to the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, that we need to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit, we need to ask for that, to receive that gift so that we can get our giftings so that we can move out uh, for all the world. And if we stay consistent with that, the church would be on fire throughout the world. We would see so many people come to know Christ. We would see so many Christians actually living like they should be living. They would be living in this godly household. They would be living lives of godliness and holiness. Um, they would be operating in all of their gifts. They would be um, people who could understand false doctrine if we could do that if we could get people all on the same page oh what a glorious day it would be and one day it will look like that uh, when jesus returns and claims his bride but we can bring heaven here the kingdom can come on earth as it is in heaven but we've got to take up the mantle and we've got to be willing to put in the work and so this is where we go in chapter four now i don't have time to read the entire chapter um because then i'll spend some time reading that but what we need to do, what we the church need to do, what is our purpose and what, what, what are we asking? What is Paul telling Timothy that he needs to do and in turn what we need to do here today? So the next, this chapter four is the personal instructions that Paul gave to Timothy. Um, he uses in 1 Timothy 1, he says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their conscience are, are dead. Uh, remember, I'm reading from the New Living Translation if you have a question. But um, so these basically, he comes down to it, right? He's still hammering home the fact that there are false teachers in the church and we cannot have false teachers in the church. We need to have true, accurate teaching of the word of God. And so we must, each one of us must be able to detect error in the church. Now we can only do that 
through understanding. So it says here that these teachers, their conscience were seared. Now seared means like you burn something. Um, if you cauterize something, if you cauterize a nerve, you burn it. And so that that nerve ending is dead basically. And so he's saying that these, these false teachers, their consciences are seared. They haven't consulted with the Lord. They haven't been praying. They haven't been studying the word of God. They've gone off on their own way and own understanding. And so now their conscience are dead. Basically, they can't receive what the Holy Spirit's trying to download to them. And so they become numb to it all. And when that happens, we, we don't care anymore. And our opinions become more important than what the word of God says. And we need to be careful not to do that. So we need to be making sure that that's not happening in the church. Um, when social issues come up, we've got to make sure that our response to those social issues are filtered through the word of God. Are we loving people more than X, Y, Z? But we have to say that, yes, there are consequences, right? There are things in the Bible that are firm um, and it's firm that we are to love people. And so we need to make sure that when teachers are teaching the word of God, that they're doing it correctly, not for their benefit, not for the church's benefit, but for the glory of God. And there's a huge, huge difference. Um, and also, we've got to remember that maybe there's some preachers and teachers who actually don't know the word of God, or they only know snippets of it. They themselves may not possess the full Holy Spirit, so they're not understanding it. And they may go to seminary, but that's head knowledge and not heart knowledge. Um, you'd be surprised how many preachers are actually not operating from the heart, but they're operating from the head. And when you do that too long and you don't receive the spirit in your heart, your teaching becomes much more knowledge-based as opposed to Holy Spirit-led. And you've got to be careful of that because they'll start sticking to lies and myths. And like they were doing here in the church of Ephesus, they were, you know, leaning towards Gnosticism, which basically said that everything that's created, every created matter is evil and they had their own ways. And so they were adapting all of these things that weren't true. And they were piling on top of old myths and making new myths and spreading lies basically about what the gospel intends to be true. Um, and remember, these, these pastors, these teachers, they're not going around, these Christians, they're not going around standing on a platform saying, I am a false teacher. I am a false prophet. They're not doing that. They're delivering a message that basically says, I'm delivering the true word of God. Um, because remember, it says here that some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. So their downloads are coming from demons, not from the Holy Spirit, because they have seared their conscience to the quickening of the Holy Spirit. And so um, they're getting the wrong download. Um, and remember, it wasn't just rampant back then. It's super rampant right now. And we need to be wise and discerning. Uh, Holy Spirit gives us the gift of discernment to understand what is true. And we can't just listen to it. And if, and if we feel like something's wrong, we need to go to the word ourselves and, and try to find understanding. We need to pray and ask for understanding for that. Um, so just like it wasn't, it was rampant back then, it's rampant today. So we shouldn't be surprised by false teachers. Um, in 1 John 2.19, John mentioned people who left the church. I mean, the apostle John talked about it. So what, what do we need to do when we come to the realization that there are false teachers? What do we need to do? Well, we need to guard our heart. We need to make sure that it doesn't sideways our faith. Um, it doesn't shipwreck our faith. We need to be firm in who we are and who God has called us to be um, and let their conscience be seared, but not our own. You need to guard your heart. 
um, we need to be saddened by false teachers. You know why? Because their preaching and their teaching has eternal measure. I mean, they could be the person who turns someone from Christ instead of leading them to Christ. They could help someone stumble. So we need to be saddened by that. Uh, we need to pray against that in our church, in um, our cities, in our in the big C church, churches around the world, we need to be praying for that, that, that the spirit of false teaching would be lifted from the church. Um, we need to pray that in unity with, for our brothers and sisters and for all the unbelievers in the world. We need to be concerned about that. Um, we need to use the word of God to wage war against false teaching. When we hear false teaching, we see it, we read about it, we need to say, no, this is what the Bible says. And the only way we can know what the Bible says is to actually read it. We have to be readers of the word. We need to be readers and doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. We need to do that. Um, we need to consider the false teaching has two specific errors. False teachers deny the goodness of God and false teachers distort the word of God. Um, it's exactly what the slippery snake did to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.1, right? He distorted it. He twisted a couple of the words. He made Eve believe, wow, God, really not that good to you. Um, did he really say that? And so when we start hearing, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe God does see me as shameful. Maybe God does doubt me. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe. It's okay to do this. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what the word says, but this teacher said this. When we start doing that, there should be an alarm going off in our hearts and our souls and our heads everywhere around us that that is from the devil. That is a demonic teaching because it distorts the word of God and it denies his goodness. Those are two huge triggers for you to know if there's error in teaching. Um, now in the, in the next part of the chapter, the false teachers were teaching about marriage. It was wrong to marry and it was wrong to eat certain foods. And they were just carrying this over from Jewish traditions, right? They were still saying, no, you can't do that. No, you can't marry. They were elevating uh, celibacy and virginity above marriage. And we know that that's wrong because a theological, a theological test that we can do is creation. God created man and woman to be married so that we can make more children so that we could populate the earth, go forth therefore and multiply. Um, and food, he created food, he created uh, nutrients, he created things to give us sustenance for life. And so these things are good and they're from God um, and they're to be received with thanksgiving in verses four, three to five, right? But God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. We need to be mindful that we need to be thankful for the gift of marriage. I'm thankful for foods. We shouldn't hold those against people and say, no, you know, your holiness depends on the fact that you can abstain from certain foods. No, you need to abstain from marriage and distraction. And this is what the false teachers were teaching. It was wrong. Even the early uh, church father Tertullian, he actually talked about um, he actually talked about place, he placed virginity too as in celibacy as a measure of holiness. And while some people are set apart for being single, and uh, some people that's just their that's just how it ends for them. But that does not mean that everybody should not be married, and that if you are married, that you're less than because that's not true. That's not what God's word says. God created man and woman. And um, for a good purpose, he created food for a good purpose. We can't make unclean what God has made clean. 
And so, but this is what the false teachers were doing. They were setting up all these things. So they were distorting the view of marriage, uh, which was causing disruption to the household, which we've already talked about in the Greco-Roman world was instability in the household, which meant instability in the government and, and chaos. And so um, another ethical test that we can measure error in the church is godliness. Um, good ministers instruct people in the word and they also nourish themselves with the word. In verses 6 to 10, Paul was telling um, Timothy, If you explain these things to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying. Paul always liked to say that, right? This is a trustworthy saying, like, I mean it. You can trust this. It's accurate. Um, and for us today, it's the word of God. It's trustworthy. And so everyone should accept it. This is why we work hard and continue to struggle for our hope is in the living God, who is the savior of all people and particularly of all believers. Right? So he was telling, he was telling Paul here that you need to practice godliness by first nurturing and nourishing yourself with the word of God before you can minister to other people. And that's critical. We need to find nourishment in the things of God before we can pour out. If we're empty, we can't fail. And so the word, he's telling here, Timothy, you need to train. I have set you there. You have been given the gifts. You need to use them. You need to train them. And he'll later go on in the rest of the chapter to say that you need to progress in these gifts. So he's saying you need to train and you need to use the gifts you have, just like an athlete who has the natural ability, the gifting to do something great, um, or a leader who has the ability, the gifting to do something great, but yet fails to use it or train, they've just neglected the gift that God has given them um, and been kind of ungrateful for it um, and not used it. And so Timothy, who Paul placed there, he's instructing um He's telling Paul, you know, don't let anyone mess with you because of your young age. I put you there and we, it, God gave you that gift and we laid hands on you and sent you out. He's saying, don't let anybody mess with you because of your age. But what you need to do is you need to live a godly life. You need to train. You need to nourish yourself with the word and these teachings. And you need to teach these things to the people there. You need to make sure everything is accurate. You need to give, he says in verse 15, give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into these tasks so that everyone will see your progress. He goes on in verse 16 to say, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teachings. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. Now that's a big claim, that end of that statement there. Um, stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. Now remember, Paul, by living out, I mean, Timothy, by living out his godliness was basically saying, you know, listen, I am a servant of Christ. And so while salvation is secured at the moment of belief, how we act it out is different, right? We can cause others to stumble. We can cause others to drift from God. We can cause others to not ever want to come to God because we repel them by our lives and our actions. And, and we say we're Christians, but then we act like hypocrites or we act like the world. And there's no distinction between the two. We could, I mean, why would somebody want that? People want what you have because of the Jesus that lives in you. And the Jesus that lives in you is like sweet honey. It's like water for a thirsty soul. And that's how we should be in the world. And so he's saying, take, 
hard and keep watch on who you are, what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you're saying, what you're teaching. Stay close to Jesus so that you can do the things that I've asked you to do until I get there. Um, it was under the, working under the authority of Paul, but he didn't want people. People might have been groaning or grumbling because, you know, Paul was about, I mean, Timothy was about in his 30s here. And, and so people were probably thinking, the elders were thinking, well, why is he put in this position? We've been elders here longer. Why didn't Paul ask one of us to do it? Why did he send this young whippersnapper to come in and tell us what to do? Um, so good teachers need to be teachable. But I would say that all Christians need to be teachable, no matter the age of somebody. I can learn something from a 10-year-old like I did last night in the car with my son, um, all the way up to a 99-year-old like sweet Billy Graham who went home to be with heaven. We can learn from all ages. And remember that it's our salvation age as well. So someone could be in their 80s, but just come to know Christ and therefore they're a baby, a spiritual baby. They don't have as much knowledge. They don't have as much experience with the Holy Spirit, as much experience with Jesus. as say someone who's 30, like a Timothy, who's been on fire for the Lord for the last decade. Um, who's been diligently studying the word, who's been diligently teaching the word, who's been steadfast in prayer. Um, so just because of our age, don't let that limit you and don't let somebody else limit you by your age. And that's what Paul's exhorting Timothy here. I mean, Paul really is an exhorter as much as he is um, a speaker and a preacher and a sharer. I mean, he is so much. He is encouraging Timothy to say, listen, don't let them talk bad to you. Don't let them talk bad about you. But you do the right thing. You follow Jesus's example in everything that you do, and it's all going to be okay. Your salvation is secure, and you're going to lead a lot of people to Jesus because of it. And that's my prayer for all of us, right? That if we stay close to Jesus and we do godly things, um, if we progress in our spiritual walk, if we um, live right, if we are teachable, we too will live out our salvation as we're sanctified. And we will also bring so many people with us into eternity. Some of whom, whom we might not even know until we get there. So that's my prayer for you this week. I pray that you um, you can look through my notes. Uh, you can go to sandalfeet.org. And if you go to the books and Bible studies, you can click on 1 Timothy, my, all my notes from today. I have like 12 pages of notes. I don't read them word for word. So if you want to dig into it a little bit more, please go to that. Um, if you don't want to watch, watch the Facebook Live back, you can listen to the podcast, which will be up later today or tomorrow. And uh, share this with your friends. Talk about it. I think it's important. We need to be Timothys. We need to be Pauls. We need to be encouraging somebody. And we need to be doing something ourselves. And we're all called to share the gospel. So I hope you have a great week. Thank you for tuning in. And I will see you next Thursday, 12 p.m. Central Time. Thank you.